0: This is writer and game designer, Robin D. Laws.
1: And this is game designer and writer, Kenneth Hite.
0: And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Designing Science Mysteries. Alexander Pierce. Hard-boiled Mutant City Blues. And Changing Condiment history.
1: Robin is known for his stylish convention shirts.
0: But you know who's really stylish? Who's that, Robin? Lumberjacks and bears in the Yukon. Mm, uh So say our friends at Atlas Games in the form of their new game, Yukon Salon, a quick, humorous, and family-friendly card game that comes in a tin.
1: Oh yeah, that's the one where you're a stylist in the frozen north and your clients are bears and lumberjacks. Hairdo cards rotate so they're beards for the lumberjacks or hairstyles for the bears. You match each style in your repertoire to just the right client and roll to see if they like it.
0: If you fail, you make outrageous claims to get a bonus and keep them from walking out.
1: Bears have hair, lumberjacks have beards, and they both need your help. Yukon Salon
0: is available now, so take your place at the frontier of style today.
1: You can learn more at atlas-games.com or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive, welcome us once more to the Gaming Hut, where here in the Gaming Hut, we find ourselves subjected to the four fundamental forces of the universe and also maybe tachyons for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) Or, I don't know, a a qualiton explosion robin? Are our quarks strange? I mean, stranger than usual? What's going on? Especially when we don't understand the science, because A, it hasn't been invented yet, and B, we're humanities nerds, for God's sakes. So, how, how can we do a proper Ashen Stars techno babble science mystery? I ask you.
0: Well, uh, I guess I'm the one to ask as a designer of Ashen Stars. And, of (laughs) course, what we're going to talk about, although we're going to use... Ashen Stars and Gumshoe as examples is something that applies to any uh, space opera game, or in fact, even any modern weird science game. Uh, So often on uh, the uh, source material, particularly on the Star Treks, you will see episodes where the uh, thing to be solved is a science problem. It's like we're trapped in a stellar anomaly, or we are experiencing uh, weird uh, time effects that we need to understand, or this Weird computers uh, wreaking all sorts of havoc, and we have to figure out how to shut down the computer. And so the typical way you might initially think of this is, oh, well, I guess we roll one of our science skills. And depending on the game, there might be one science skill, as there is, say, for example, in in certain version uh, sequences of The Yellow King. Or as in Ashen Stars, it's broken down into many specialties the way that all of the different characters in a space opera crew, are generally going to have different scientific specialties because sciencing is what they do. So you might think, well, they just use their science ability, and that solves the problem. But that is uh, somewhat anticlimactic. So, how, what do we do? What do we look at in terms of making this an actual uh, mystery with suspense to it, and questions to answer, and places to go, and things to do? And the answer is. As you would in a more typical mystery, like where you're trying to figure out who's committed a crime or uh, track down someone who's gone missing or, uh, you know, the the many more obvious things that we think of as mysteries. The answer is uh, the mystery is laid out in a series of stages. And that means that there are a number of ability uses and those ability uses take you to different places in the narrative correct
1: yeah i mean or they can the goal fundamentally is to create tension from something that is, is in the source material created entirely at screenwriter's whim you can for example require a number of successes as uh you mentioned you can require a specific uh sequence of activities but it all comes down to in this case designer's whim the the, the natural conflict that's happening the natural conflict is one that because the science itself is either fuzzy or non-existent or badly understood that solution which seems to be the key to the episode is turned arbitrarily and when that is the only thing in the episode is oh cross circuit to a or refibrillate the warp drive or backward deflector shields it or whatever that's unsatisfying. And so the real secret to this is not necessarily the sequence of roles or when they have to occur, but th- what's going on? What does this the weird anomaly cause to happen or what is also happening at the same time as the weird anomaly that the weird anomaly is distracting you from? And so the real problem may be that your, your first officer is being hunted by their vengeful um uh, son who wants to kill them. And you have to solve that while, meanwhile, uh the ship is going through some sort of weird gravity anomaly, and so you can't use the elevators and uh the, the pursuit becomes more uh, complex or something is taken over the computer, so you can't use an internal search. So the anomaly exists not to drive the story, but to complicate the real story. And by solving that, you then receive the story resources needed to resolve the actual action, whatever it happens to be interpersonal or some other Uh, mystery or or challenge that's happening.
0: Right. The key word there is meanwhile, that very often in these plot lines, the technological problem is just a thing that is trapping the characters in a situation that otherwise they would not be stuck in, that they would be able to get their way out of easily. And often it is an opportunity for psychodrama of some kind, whether the uh, stellar anomaly is actually causing hallucinations or is heaven forfend causing you to interact with characters on the holodeck as if they are real, uh, (laughs) that um, there is some other sort of interpersonal story that has to be realized also before the technical problem is solved. And so another thing though, that the technical problem can often be is the ticking clock. And I think that automatically adds suspense, right? Is that if we don't Mm -hmm. figure out this robot slash computer slash stellar anomaly within 12 hours, the ship's going to blow and that brings us to the an, another way that you can make this exciting and suspenseful which is you can add a physical hazard that the uh, the science mystery is not just you know well after we figure this out we're going to write one hell of a space paper and it's going to get published in all the space journals but rather uh, there is some physical threat that occurs if you don't uh, solve it and also or alternatively there are things that you have to go and do that put you in physical danger in order to gather more science information. So, uh, well, in order to find out what the uh, stellar anomaly is, we're going to have to send somebody in a shuttle to pilot their ship close uh, to the edge without being uh, sucked in over to the other side of the anomaly where they will never be seen again. And so that allows you, oh boy, we can can get some piloting uh, in there. Or, you know, you're going to have to go into the inner uh, engine nacelle and uh, and plug the leak in order to find out uh, then what caused the leak. But before you uh, find out what caused the leak, you have to prevent it from blowing up. And then, of course, you can always introduce secondary and antagonists who can come in and cause trouble and danger that you are there to, you know, rescue the ship uh, from, the, uh, from the wormhole. But at the same time, oh, the space pirates are coming and they're going to uh, attack you while you're vulnerable. So there are Ways in which uh, you mentioned before that often the science problem complicates the real problem, but also a secondary problem can complicate the science problem.
1: And I think the real secret to making this compelling is to make the circumstances of the anomaly, broadly speaking, interesting in themselves in the same way that uh, people will put up with a, a scene where maybe not a ton happens if they're interested in something else, if they're interested in the setting or they're interested in an interpersonal dispute between themselves or whatever else there's, there's something else going on and a proper anomaly is something that has a bigger effect or a, an effect that is fun to play with mentally, uh, something that, you know, it gives you opportunities in the moment. So in Star Trek, you have the weird goo that makes you age. And so everyone gets to, you know, uh, get old and, and play old people and, and have, uh, do funny voices. And, and that's a fun, uh, thing to do with your character. Or there can be something that the stellar anomaly makes you see. Um, uh, the dead person who means the most to you. And are the dead actually, you know, trapped gravitically around this star? Is that where dead people go? Is the space heaven like in Star Trek V? Or is this uh, a big mind plot by the, the Mohalar or somebody like in a actual story? you know but the <laughs> but the act of interacting and deciding bottle episode style this is the person i most regret losing that is interesting itself even if the solution really does come down to you know two navigation roles and a and a probe to to test the the the, the gravity levels or something um there's a there's one that i wrote up for The Star Trek The Next Generation game that I don't think ever got published that was uh, just playing with time dilation and the notion being that the Enterprise had gotten itself jammed up somehow on its uh, warp drive, banged into a a warp tunnel. And so parts of the ship continued to accelerate it faster than the speed of light, but the rest of the ship was stuck in sublight. And so you started having you know, things that happened that, uh, no longer had simultaneity with the bridge. And so you would have two sets of characters that both have to solve it, but they have to solve it while solving the time lag problem and some other stuff. And so that's just a fun philosophical concept to play with is what is simultaneity. And if you think you can, uh, have enough of a handle on it to deal with the, uh, with, with the player or character whose job is to know all about physics, then, you can just create enough fun out of a uh, wild anomalous happening that the one role that basically solves it isn't an anticlimax because the story was not about climax. It was about technically, you know, tourism or having some other kind of fun than, you know, suspense or, or story building fun. Although I, susp- I advise you should always have a story just in case people aren't as fond of time dilation as you thought they were.
0: And another thing that you can do is have... Rather than you are solving a science problem, you have some other problem that you solve by figuring out the science. And this enables you to throw in a sort of a, a, a checkoffs fact uh, where early on the uh, characters observe something that uh, they don't necessarily, that is just, oh, here's an interesting uh, thing that we've seen in our survey mission. So, for example, you might uh, realize that the uh, giant unicellular uh, bacteria on this planet seem to be behaving in some sort of hive mind uh, kind of fashion, and then uh, later as you go along, you get more interested in the fact that there, are, you know, there's this sinister autocrat on the planet who is uh, crushing people under uh, her uh, stiletto heel, and then you realize. Ideally, by having the players figure out that this is something they can do rather than just having the result of the roll tell you how to solve the problem. Oh, wait a minute. What if we can marshal the uh, behavior of these uh, giant single-celled organisms who act in concert? What if we can use them to bash down the uh, drawbridge of the uh, castle or uh, knock the space autocrat off of her space pedestal.
1: That's not so much a a story where the anomaly is the center, but it's where you have the anomaly in your hip pocket. So the real challenge is how do you outmaneuver this more powerful enemy ship? Oh, look at that. There's an ion storm. We can use that to shield us or we can use that. And yeah, it makes it more dangerous because it's an ion storm, but we can use it to equalize the situation. And that gives you a possibility of, Again, as you suggest, spotlight time for the character who actually thinks it up as opposed to you, the GM who feeds it to the players. And then that's something that I think you should always be thinking of in terms of these sorts of anomaly stories is since they're completely arbitrary and since they're all nonsense, use them to highlight or spotlight either a player who doesn't get a lot of spotlight time or whose uh you know thing that they wanted to do is science ness they're maybe they're playing the science officer or they put more points into the science skills than uh, other players so it's sort of their niche and it gives them an opportunity to uh, use that niche as opposed to the more standard you know ray guns ability that everybody uses all the time
0: and you could also uh look at your uh, your science news feed wherever you get your science news and see uh, some new interesting technological development and uh, find a way to extrapolate that forward and add some techno babble to disguise it as a, a thing that they don't know about in the 25th century or whatever century it is, and wrap your story around that and use inspiration uh, from that to then come up with your uh, cool uh, story hook. Well, I think I'm detecting a canon anomaly on the other side of this commercial, so I think we better uh, get in the shuttle and uh, fly on over and, and see exactly what it might be.
1: Axis, mighty capital of the Dragon Empire. Markets flow with goods and gold. Ambitious nobles rise and fall. Knives flash in reeking alleys. While the metallic dragons who guard the Empire watch over it all. Something murderous lurks beneath the gladiatorial arena. And your adventurers... ...are just the heroes to confront
0: it. In Crown of Axis, an introductory 13th Age Adventure... ...by Wade
1: Rocket... ...from Pelgrane Press. Play as a one-shot or as a campaign starter. Customizable based on characters' icon relationships. Delve into danger by getting the PDF
0: today. Cardist listeners can use the voucher code... ...hashcrown21. That's crown21 to save... 15% at com slash shop. That's crown of access for 13th age. The mugshot of the kookaburra and the Tasmanian devil in the interrogation room tell us that we've once more unfurled the crime blotter, but it's not just any old crime blotter because uh, due to a request from beloved Patreon backer, tenant Reed, we're going to look at a story that happens in Australia, the story of Alexander Pierce and Ken, like many crime blotter stories. Uh, this one gets a little bit grim.
1: Yeah. It's, it's as though it's the crime blotter, not the fun kittens blotter. Why do <laughs> I have a fun kittens blotter, Robin?
0: Well, the, you have to remember to change the fun kittens blotter a lot, which is why yeah. you don't see it a lot on the show. Exactly. So Alexander Pierce was born in 1790 in County Monaghan, Ireland. And, uh, In uh, 1819, he got into a spot of trouble. He was arrested for stealing six pairs of shoes. I don't know. Maybe there'd be clemency if he'd only stolen two for his personal use. But because it was 1819 and justice was still cruel, uh, for that crime, he was exiled to Van Diemen's Land, or Tasmania, uh, as we know it. And uh, Ken, this is, I think, where you can pick the story up.
1: Right. He's dumped off in Tasmania and continues, perhaps unsurprisingly, to not accept the authority over him. He violates various rules and then escapes the penal colony, thinking, why should I be in this penal colony when I can be in Big happy Tasmania next door. He, uh, of course, though, doesn't know anything about Tasmania. So they rounded back up. Um, they it turns charge out him. This
0: penal colony is located in an inhospitable place where there's no food. Yeah. Well, when you escape,
1: or where the uh, locals have a justifiable distrust for everyone else, possibly because they are being exterminated by the hated British at this very moment. Anywho, our buddy Pierce is sentenced now for trying to escape and for forging an order to let him escape. So double, double tap on him. And he goes off to a new penal colony, which is in McCary Harbor. And it's called Sarah Island. And it's a bad place. And of course, what he does is escape again. Apparently, it does not occur to the British that just putting you on a desolate island counts as a wall. So
0: It will motivate (laughs) people to spend all their time thinking, how do I get off this desolate island?
1: Exactly. So, the eight of them, he and seven buddies, uh, all uh, bust out. One of them with an axe. Taken advisedly, in this case. Yes, right. That says, well... Soon discover right. One of them has an axe, and so therefore, uh, the magic of democracy makes him the leader, and he has a uh, a sidekick. <laughs> yes, it's a, it's axe democracy. Right. Uh, he has a sidekick, so he he doesn't have to uh, be looking at you always. Someone will rat you out, and then he'll be punked with an axe. Right. And, and the guy with the axe is named uh, Robert Greenhill. Right. And his uh, sidekick is Travers, and uh, they are looking for a boat to get off the island. And they're not having a lot of luck. And again, as previously mentioned, the locals are staying well out of the way. There may not even have been very many in the area. And if there were, they certainly took off early. So about 15 days into wandering around Sarah Island looking for food or anything, they don't find either of those things. They start starving to death and they begin to draw lots to see who is going to, you know, have to suddenly find or become food. We're not sure because oddly enough, they didn't keep a record. Uh, who was the first uh, lucky winner? Maybe it was a guy named Thomas Bodenham. Maybe it was Alexander Dalton. At any point, Greenhill chopped up the first guy with his axe. This caused a degree of unsettlement by the rest of the folks. Uh, they scampered away. Two of them reached, uh, McCary Harbor, but, uh, one of them was also still vanished. And we don't know if he just died in the woods or if he was also Et. So anyhow, uh, Greenhill, Travers, Pierce, and another guy named John Mather are wandering around. And since Greenhill and Travers vote together and have an axe, Mathers and Pierce are kind of in a bad situation. Yes.
0: We'll recognize this dynamic from Survivor, uh, but this was really Survivor.
1: Yeah, this is legit Survivor. Yeah. When you get voted off the island, you you get voted off. Fundamentally. So, uh, Pierce then says, well, I never liked uh, Mathers anyway, that guy. I mean, I liked him as a culinary option, if you know what I mean. And so, they they, they kill uh, Mathers and eat him. And then, this is why you always, uh, you know, keep yourself alive. Travers, sidekick Travers, gets bitten by a snake. And so, now Greenhill doesn't have a buddy, a lookout buddy. He makes Pierce carry him, but that obviously doesn't work out. Um, and so he dies. And now it's axe versus wiliness, I guess, but not axe. Pierce grabs the axe at some point, either Greenhill goes to sleep or Pierce, you know, jumps him, kills Greenhill, eats him. And then finally discovers a, a local aboriginal camp area, steals food from them, and then makes his way to a, uh, a a British sheep farm or a, a settled area and uh, starts eating the sheep. But fortunately, the guy who owns the sheep is an old buddy of Pierce. So what are the odds, he, I guess?
0: He he spent point on a network and you thought it would never pay off. And here we go. <laughs> here we One are. One sheep farm and he gets to spend his network points.
1: And then so the the sheep farm guy says, well, seeing as you have an axe and are already, you know, as criminal as one can get in Tasmania. Why don't we uh, set up a sheep stealing ring since suddenly I'm short of sheep. (laughs) So they run a little sheep rustling sideline and were uh, eventually grabbed along with a couple of other uh, sheep rustlers in a sweep and pulled up, taken to Hobart to uh, be tried for all manner of offenses. And it is at this point that Pierce says, oh, you think those are offenses? Wait till I tell you about all the people I ate. And people are saying, Oh, you didn't it's eat a, it's people. It's a hard
0: secret to keep. You know, once right. you know that, you're just tempted to tell a
1: story. Yeah. I, I guess, you know, and then he, he told a bunch of different versions of his eating people story. And then people were like, Oh, you're too skinny. If you'd been eating all those people, you'd be, you wouldn't be so skinny. And if you weren't skinny, you wouldn't, he
0: had to eat people because he got desperately skinny. <laughs> the The cause and effect there was not clear
1: right and everyone metabolizes human flesh at different at different levels yeah yeah but anyway apparently they had some uh you know uh farcical visual test for cannibalism which he didn't pass but people still didn't like him and so uh he escaped again after having said i'm a cannibal and someone still said yeah i'll escape into the woods with you and yeah that didn't work out well for young thomas cox
0: yeah so <laughs> when you're in that situation if, if the guy who's escaping with you doesn't have snacks, you, my friend, are the snack.
1: yeah, look around the look around the escape table. but at any rate, they 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 grabbed him again and uh, Pierce's story this time was not, oh, I was hungry because he kills him pretty soon after the escape starts. He says, well, we've gotten to a river, and uh, Cox my uh, this guy couldn't swim, so he'd just be dead weight at that point. And at this point one says, you're just looking for excuses to eat people, Alexander Pierce. <laughs>
0: yeah, the first the first bout of cannibalism might have been a misunderstanding. But
1: yeah, now it's just a habit. Yeah. So anyway, um, he confesses one last time to Father Connolly, who was the Catholic priest in charge of the Catholic prisoners. And one assumes Father Connolly says, well, <laughs> here's your penance. You're going to be hanged by the neck tomorrow. But there we are. So uh, he is, in fact, hanged. Uh, On the 19th of July, 1824, this is after, what, three escapes, I guess, and two separate bouts of cannibalism, and his last words were reportedly, man's flesh is delicious, it tastes far better than fish or pork, which, quite frankly, is more of an indictment of Irish cooking than it is (laughs) a a legitimate comeback, I feel.
0: Right, and and also has... Something of a written quality, I have to say. Mm. That, uh, you
1: feel that perhaps this story was um, uh, embroidered by later reports? The, the hand of an
0: embellisher, I think, is present in that famous last words. So uh, this was the subject of a, a novel written in 1874 called For the Term of His Natural Life by a writer named Marcus Clark. And there was a whole spate of Alexander Pierciana in the cinema near the end of last decade. So in 2008, it was a biopic Uh, The Last Confession of Alexander Pierce uh, with Adrian Dunbar. There's also a 2008 horror film with Lee Winnell in the lead called Dying Breed. And uh, then another year later, there was uh, yet another biopic. And that one is called Van Diemen's Land. And I think that one focuses on the the escape. And I haven't seen any of these, and they get middling reviews at best. Uh, So I guess that still leaves us, Ken, with the question of, Uh, what are we going to do with this story? And I think the the first obvious thing is to just sort of take the basic format of uh, his escape, have a different set of characters escaping from a penal colony, and uh, they all head out into the wilderness, and then there's uh, something out there, some force, uh, perhaps uh, uh, whatever the Tasmanian equivalent of the Wendigo is, that is impelling them uh, toward uh, cannibalism, and there you've got your Gruesome, scary, Lovecraftian uh, one-shot that you can run at a convention where the uh, uh, players all realize uh, early on that uh, not all of them are going to make it, and then perhaps when they don't make it, they can then play the uh, uh, things lurking out in the woods or in the rivers.
1: Yeah, I mean you can uh, make this a sort of the the undertone basics for what's basically sort of a an Australian proto-western or a. Or or a Western Gothic type thing, you can also make it sort of backstory that um, uh, I think in the in the Dying Breed movie somehow Pierce also finds time to raise a family of chuds that live in the wilderness. I I don't know if you want to have that, but you can certainly have a cannibal spirit like whatever a Tasmanian Wendigo is that uh, exists out there and uh, possessed. Pierce and was uh, given life by him, and then sort of still sticks around and is uh, connected to a to some sort of cannibal cult or, or cannibal activity. You can also, of course, have just the the, the necessity. You know, make this sort of a, a plot coupon where the ritual that you need involves, you know, the bones of someone who is cannibalized. And you know that this guy was, you know, cannibalizing people in Tasmania. So you can go to Tasmania and find, you know, one of the grave sites through your magical and occult means. And of course, when you do that, there's going to be ghosts and and monsters and angry dreamtime spirits who hate that you're there uh, for so many good reasons um coming after you. And you either have to defeat or placate them in order to get the bones for the next stage of whatever your magic ritual is. So it can be a set piece as opposed to the sort of core of a, of a story, right? Right.
0: And I guess a version that does this, that is not quite so horrible to the player characters and preserves their sense of basic sympathy is they're the ones pursuing a group of uh, escapees. And they then realize that uh, whatever is out there in the wilderness is uh, driving them to cannibalism. And so they're, <laughs> rounding up the fugitives rather than being the group of <laughs> escapees who are slowly axing and eating one another
1: although it's it's hard to say i mean obviously cannibals bad but hated british jailers also bad i'm not sure there's a really strong moral viewpoint uh, in this story, unless uh, you're maybe the aborigines in Tasmania who are just just flummoxed and, and uh, disgusted by everything going on. But again, that would involve a lot of research and a huge chance to screw it up. So maybe don't play the um, Tasmanians versus uh, cannibals game unless you maybe yourself are Tasmanian or at least have done a lot more research on it than uh, this podcast can bother to do. And I should uh, mention that I misspoke earlier. They did not escape onto Sarah Island, which is a desolate spit of rock. They were taken to Macquarie Harbor to do convict labor and escape from there. So they were loose somewhere in the middle of Tasmania. So don't send your people to Sarah Island, send them to some random spot in the middle of Tasmania. That's probably got a shopping mall on it now.
0: Well, we've got a, a number of possible uh, scenarios out of that. All obviously horror because cannibalism. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, so I think it's uh, time for us to... uh safely travel this river uh, where both of us have an axe and neither of us are hungry and see what lies on the other side.
1: The Best of Ask the is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled...
0: and Six Guns role playing
1: game, Western. How do you say slap leather, Varmint, in Swedish?
0: Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that.
1: That's the best of Asphageln on Drive Through. Keep this podcast out of fatal ion storms by joining such beloved Patreon backers as Neil Kaplan, Paul and Cleo Bushland, Liz and Siski, Adam Grotyon, and Robert Dean. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Beloved Patreon backer Kaiju Thulhu asks Ken and Robin, any advice for running hard-boiled Mutant City Blues PIs in the 30s? Robin, do you have any advice? Or is that sort of um, extend your arms, fall gently backward into the or narrative of hard-boiled PIs? watch Maltese Falcon a lot?
0: (laughs) I guess the way into this is to step back and look at what Mutant City Blues does and then see which parts of it we will disassemble and then reassemble to try and come up with a sort of a 30s pop equivalent. So Mm -hmm. the conceit of Mutant City Blues is that it's a a police procedural in a world where people uh, not only have uh, superpowers, but all of those powers are explicable to forensic science. And so it's a mashup of superhero comic books and these sort of techno procedurals like CSI and criminal minds and bones, and to a lesser extent, uh, anything else where they, the cops occasionally visit the coroner. Uh, so that would encompass your uh, classic law and order or even like homicide life on the street. And the uh, question then is if you are looking to do 30s. Uh, hard-boiled detective stories, what do those do and what do those need to which the modern procedural TV shows are irrelevant? And the number one thing there is uh, forensics. So that's very baked into the entire concept of Mutant City Blues. You've got the Quaid diagram that shows you the relationships between all the different powers, how they're genetically related, and therefore someone who has a webbing power doesn't also probably have a fire projection power because they're too far away on the genome. Well, all of that goes out the window for a couple of reasons in a hard-boiled story. First of those, of course, is that uh, forensics was not nearly so uh, developed back then. Uh, you could still sort of make kind of imaginary pulpy forensics if you wanted to, but that is also not really part of the spirit of hard-boiled detective fiction in which there may occasionally be a reference to ballistics or... Uh, to matching footprints or tire prints or sometimes fingerprints.
1: Or the killer was left-handed, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. But even the uh, sort of the emphasis on uh, forensics in uh, didn't doesn't really come around until the post-war period where uh, Jack Webb starts uh, introducing that to the public consciousness. So, can the way that people solve mysteries in hardball detective fiction is...
1: They get beat up a lot. Or sometimes they beat other people up a lot. It's uh, a series of fundamentally refusing to take I'm not talking to you for an answer until enough people have beaten you up that you have either zeroed in on who the actual killer is by dint of everyone sort of uh, dialogue while, while punching you, or the person who actually did the killing is the person who's ordering the most, uh, attacks on you and you narrow it down that way. The, that's sort of the Chandler versus Hammett system in a nutshell. The d- degree of actual detection that occurs in a hard boiled story is generally pretty minimal.
0: Right. And sometimes you go around and you're not physically beaten. You're just verbally lashed. Right. Yes. Right. You're sent packing. Right. And sometimes you're smarter and wittier than the people you're talking to. Uh, sometimes the uh, people are smarter and wittier than you. Usually, those people are are dames. Mm-hmm. Uh, this brings a, a bunch of other questions into focus. So, mainly, uh, this is about plotting around, talking to people until finally uh, someone spills the beans, or having been beaten, you then uh, realize what's what's going on. Uh, and so, it's primarily about navigating a. World of corrupt people who know each other and unweaving their interlocking relationships until you figure out uh, who killed who. And famously, sometimes, as in Chandler's The Big Sleep, he doesn't necessarily bother to figure out who killed everybody. Yeah, and that comes up when someone tries to adapt the screenplay version of it. And also, the thing about the hard boiled is you're alone. You're a uh, a white knight walking down the the mean streets without getting them on you, and this implies. Uh, Either a small cast of characters or even like a a one to one uh, situation. And one in which I think we're suggesting also that you are uh, kind of vulnerable to uh, the corruption, both spiritually and physically, i.e., you get beat up a lot. So Mm -hmm. that might, I think, make us want to constrain the set of uh, mutant powers so that there may be other people who have uh, flame powers and super strength, but maybe you've got fast healing. That'd be a good one to have. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. That would really fit the genre. But you have a more, that the the section of the Quaid diagram is sort of hived off so that you are uh, still alone and and vulnerable and even less of a a superhero than the low-powered heroes you get in regular uh, Mutant City Blues.
1: I I think you should maybe think about dialing it back so that, you know, people have got, one superpower, or at least the, the 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 characters do that. You know, oh, I'm I've got uh, the the keen vision. I've got the you know uh, fast healing. You know, I'm uh, super strong, and that way you're you still have only a few basic roads to go down, and you can always be you know trumped by either a gun or by a more powerful. Uh, super. So, you know, the, the guy with super strength is great, but the guy with, uh, heat vision is still gonna, you know, be able to, you know, beat them up if, if that's what they need to do. I, I think you could maybe add, you know, crazy old Doc Quaid who thinks he understands this mutant, uh, ghost flu that maybe came out of the, the real flu epidemic in 1920 and then turned into the ghost flu. And that's why people have had superpowers. And we're in the thirties after the, uh, roaring 20s of superpowers is is kind of uh expanded itself and uh you know you can if you want to uh keep the quade diagram you know that's that's you you make it not a thing that you the player has to know but a resource that you have to go to and, and ask about in the same way that a a cop in dragnet is not a, a csi cop
0: and so for example the quade diagram might not be based on a dna study but uh, old doc quaid has done a, t- a statistical analysis and he's figured out that's why the powers as the ones that you choose still exist all interconnect
1: right or uh it's it's not even a genetic thing or the genetics uh manifest in a way that old doc quaid can tell with his microscope he looks at the blood of someone with uh tele- telepathy and realizes that he's never seen the little uh, webbing cules in that blood so he assumes you know based on his uh data that you know uh, telepathy. Uh, platelets eat cules, and so you you can't have both in the same body or whatever it is.
0: And I think the other thing that you want to emphasize is that uh, the power of being rich is still the greatest superpower in a hard world universe, right? And that the rich people control the powered people. Uh, you know, it's a pretty good life as a superpowered henchman uh, to a corrupt mob boss or uh, the person who uh, runs uh, the newspaper and uh, controls the police department. Uh, you know, if you're thirty-eight, LA. The difference between the uh, the mob and the police department is uh, no difference. It's yeah. the same. They're just connected.
1: Are you are you hit with a club or with uh, brass knuckles? Is really right. the it's a cuisine question.
0: Yes, or or a super claw, right? As as the case may be,
1: which might be either. So
0: I think that's basically it. That you uh, very lightly salt superpowers into something that still remains predominantly a hard boiled or later on a film noir. Uh, universe, and it's still about uh, money and desire and corruption and that uh, having superpowers just makes all of those things
1: uh, slightly worse. Yeah. In the the great tradition of power, generally.
0: And I think uh, at this point, we will seize the power to end this segment and head along to our final segment of this podcast.
1: Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality.
0: Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax.
1: Doors open to endless Victorian hallways.
0: Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone.
1: But don't despair. There is hope a king waits for us.
0: And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF
1: Now, hardback in May.
0: Twice as big a book as Arc Dream Planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes.
1: Also sees the bonus new release, Delta Green Static Protocol, which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action action of impossible
0: landscapes and entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper
1: into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing
0: The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. Uh, This, of course, is the conveyance that uh, Ken's superiors at Time Incorporated used to send him back into history and bend, fold, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. But in this case, Ken, uh, this is even more exciting. This is a pulse-pounding crossover event with the Food Hut because estimable Patreon backer Martin Runquist asks, How would Ken swap the standard condiments... In current U.S. fast food, from mustard and tomato ketchup to two different ones. So I guess the way that this question is phrased is you still have the option of creating some other sort of uh, ketchup. But I guess first, as always, we need to research the actual history before you start Mucking around
1: with it—that's the rule, Robin. Always research before you interfere. That, well, it's it's more of a guideline. Anyway, the larger point is: ketchup begins as one of many forms of fish sauce, which is a standard condiment that exists all up and down the South China coastline. Uh, we, of course, m- are most familiar now with Vietnamese fish sauce, but there's lots of different ones. Ketchup was just one of those, and it was exported as a flavoring agent all over the world by the East India Company. And in America, some bright spark had the idea to mix this with tomatoes, because tomatoes are delicious and uh, sweet and tasty and good for you, Uh, or I mean, at least... That's what the health food people that invented tomato ketchup thought. So the first uh, American tomato ketchup, which is the first known tomato ketchup, is uh, already brewed up by 1812. There are recipes for it. There is a national ketchup brand, Yerkes. uh, That exists by 1837. And in Heinz, a brilliant marketer and not a bad, I guess, food chemist in Pittsburgh named uh, R.J. Heinz, comes up with Heinz ketchup. And his innovation is to sell it in glass bottles before then ketchup was sold in brown bottles so that if it had gone off or looked terrible you couldn't tell but Heinz sold it in bright clear glass bottles so that once your ketchup was no longer red uh, you just wouldn't buy it and that is the thing that gave Heinz the leg up and gave him the national market and that happens in 1876 in 1910, now, he also
0: thickens right. uh, the ketchup, right? So but he, but he
1: does that he he does that as a result of a FDA crackdown on benzoates, which are common preservatives, and the FDA thinks maybe drinking, you know, a couple of tablespoons of benzoate is bad for you, and so they're saying you can't be using benzoate. So Heinz thickens uh, the ketchup up by adding basically more tomatoes and then adding vinegar to basically make the tomatoes themselves the preserving agent. And that is done uh, in 1910. And that's sort of the new formula of Heinz ketchup that's based on uh, bacteriological research done by a a woman who immigrated to America from Stratford, Ontario with her family as a baby named Catherine Bidding. And she worked as a bacteriologist and uh, food uh, chemist for the USDA, the Department of Agriculture, and uh, so Heinz takes her research, says, well, let's try it, dumps it in with a lot of sugar as well, and that becomes Heinz red tomato ketchup, and that basically takes over the market. Meanwhile, right. and, and the
0: thickening is the thing here, right? That's that's what brings us across the Rubicon uh, flavor from a sauce into what I think we think is a condiment, that, that it has to have sort of a, a creamy substance to it mostly, and that's why... Our, uh, where mustard also kind of fits the bill, right?
1: Yeah, the, uh, the mustard that we know in America, the uh, French's uh, yellow mustard, which is, by the way, literally the perfect thing to put on hot dogs and uh, almost the perfect thing to put on hamburgers. Uh, mustard, of course, goes all the way back to Roman times. The, the Romans spread mustard to from end to end of their empire. Mustard has been a standard condiment in, in British food. Since forever in America, the sort of name brand mustards begin in 1852 with the premium mustard mills of Chicago, Illinois, uh, which becomes Plachman's in 1882. There's another brand of mustard that's uh, the oldest brand on the market called Golden's. Golden's is a brown mustard. French's is founded in 1884 and they uh, come up with something called cream salad mustard, which is milder than regular mustard. It's creamier than regular mustard. Once we're going to your point, and it adds turmeric to make it yellow. So it is creamy, mild, and yellow. And that is American hot dog mustard. They sell it at the World's Fair in St. Louis. It's sold in a, in a carton with a little paddle for you to, to stir it up with. And they figure out, uh, maybe we should bottle it in 1915. There's a national advertising campaign in 1926 that turns it into America's favorite mustard. So those are, those are the two condiments that Martin Rundquist wishes us to replace. Now I am happy, Robin, as a, just a, Side note, to replace ketchup all day, every day. But uh, yellow mustard, I feel a great deal of, of paternal affection for. So, Well, I, I'm a ketchup fan,
0: and uh, a regular yellow mustard is is uh, not exciting to me. So not excited. between both of us on this podcast, we view this mission as one of those essentially sinister missions that I'm sure we'll have to. Undo, but as a thought experiment.
1: As a thought experiment. So, the question is, what do we replace those things with? Because, again, mustard is such a standard part of English cuisine that jolting it out of its position in American cuisine requires a a sharper knock. And I think that one possibility would have to be that we replace it with horseradish, that mustard becomes an English thing, like tea. Maybe the, you know, British East India Company also has got the monopoly on mustard. And so, uh, it becomes patriotic to eat horseradish instead of mustard. Washington and Jefferson both grew horseradish. And as it happens, our friend Mr. Hines... First bottled horseradish sauce. That was his first bottled condiment. And that was bottled in uh, that, that was the began in the 1850s. And it had become a regional brand all over the middle Atlantic states by 1869. So bottled horseradish is almost heading to America's condiment status anyway. But of course, Heinz gets distracted by the fact that, oh, look, ketchup. So there's a couple of, of weak points in, in the Heinz story, first of all, Catherine Bidding, her family might have, oh, I don't know, received a mysterious bequest and never moved out of Ontario. And so she grows up a happy chemist in Ontario and never uh, does any research on tomato ketchup. Right, so, and,
0: and by that, you mean like money rather than being sent on a quest to find
1: bees. Well, the money is in payment for finding bees, Robin. I'm right. not sure what that's how Probably it works in Canada. Probably she'll go into or, the honey
0: business, right? Yeah.
1: She could have made a mark in any business, I feel. But in this in this version, she does not make a mark in the ketchup business. The benzoate scare basically drives ketchup off the market. And so you are left then with the umami sweet hole uh, that is ketchup has to be filled by something. Another weak spot is that Heinz himself goes bankrupt in 1875, thanks to the crash of 1873. Uh, his brothers loan him money to restart his company, and ketchup is the first product that he makes after that. So if Heinz never gets that loan, or if he, um, uh, for some other reason is forced to uh, get out of the business and sell his horseradish line to another company, then again, you've knocked ketchup off its pins. But the question is, what replaces ketchup? And the answer has to be some form of hideous brown sauce. That is the other thing that that, uh, that fits that palate spot. So, A1 sauce is invented in England in 1824. It's marketed in 1831 across Britain after the guy who invents it discovers people are selling it in restaurants without asking him. It's imported into the United States in 1906, so right around the same time that ketchup blows up thanks to the bidding method. Leon Perrins, of course, makes Worcestershire sauce. You can imagine a thicker, creamier Worcestershire sauce. That's been imported into America since 1839, and HP sauce the brownest of the brown sauces is invented at some point in the 1870s and patented in 1895, and so that's another possibility that we simply borrow uh, HP sauce from our friends across the pond and eat that garbage on everything. So
0: it would have to be again thickened in some way, made yeah.
1: creamy. Yeah, I mean, uh, this I feel uh, Americans are capable of doing right. is is thickening and creaming things
0: be, because I think there's something that there's a there's an elephant in the room, as it were. And that is the your mayonnaise, mm-hmm. your aioli, which, of course, is uh, mayonnaise with delicious uh, garlic in it. Or even what's happening now is the uh, it looks like there may be a new condiment rising in America. And that, of course, is ranch. Mm-hmm. And a ranch mayo, a creamier uh, thing with ranch flavorings, also has that sort of umami, that tangy bit. And uh, it seems to me that as a time traveler, you're being somewhat fastidious here where you could... Uh, in fact, brute force this and take a barrel of thickened, creamy ranch dressing to Heinz or to, I don't know, perhaps some worthy Chicagoan and provide that to them uh, with the recipe. So that that's would of course, result in a Chicago where people put creamy ranch on their hot dogs.
1: Well, if it's replacing ketchup, it's a Chicago where they don't put creamy ranch on their hot dogs, but everyone else does. Again, taking ranch back in time is one of those things like unleashing rabbits in Australia, except rabbits are delightful and ranch is terrible. It's a bad idea for a reason, but it certainly could happen. Mayonnaise, of course, has been beloved American condiment, but the problems with keeping it shelf stable defeated people well into the 1940s and 50s. So it's never going to replace ketchup and mustard. Uh, Ranch you could probably, since it doesn't taste like anything anyway, you could certainly add vinegar or something to preserve it and then bulk up on the, on the milk solids or powder to thicken up the other way. I mean, the reason the ketchup works is it's got all five flavors in it. It, it begins bitter and salty, the thickening and ripening add umami and sweetness. And of course the vinegar, the preserves that preserves it adds acid. So you're hitting all five taste areas with ketchup, which is something that you would have to do with any of these other sauces as well, not just creamify them, but certainly sweeten them all and make them more palatable in that way. Ranch, as you say, is already sweet. It has elements of savory quality to it. I I think that if you're taking it back in time, you're going to have to add acid to preserve it, but the other qualities maybe aren't going to be there. So, even in this America, in the ranch dressing America, I feel like ranch will not have the stranglehold that ketchup does
0: right because as soon as you've had delicious delicious ketchup on your fries or on your hamburgers mmm ketchup yeah definitely this uh this is a plan that you should think about but but never never execute Ken
1: I I, I will never execute it because first of all if uh there is no ketchup not eating ketchup stops being a moral act <laughs>
0: yes there'd be one less way you would be special
1: plus who am i to disappoint the eight-year-olds of america or the people with palates of eight-year-olds in america after all they are just as important as people who are grown-ups i feel right
0: Uh, and the hilarious thing about ketchup famously the reagan administration was roasted for uh, proposing that ketchup counted as a vegetable in school lunches but because it is made of super concentrated tomatoes you're eating many many tomatoes when you uh, have, uh, even a small serving of ketchup. It is actually super nutritious.
1: Yeah. So take that, smart guys in 1984.
0: Exactly. <laughs> we've, uh, we've rescued that one part of the Reagan administration. Uh, well, normally at this point in time machine, we then go on to say, what are the gaming applications of this? The answer to this one is absolutely none. There's, <laughs> no game scenario it's it's
1: it's a method in which you signpost that you're in another timeline right so you you walk out uh, you've just watched the brooklyn dodgers take down the arizona diamondbacks in you know the world series in in 2002 and you walk out and there on the on the hot dog cart is your ranch dressing your uh thick a1 sauce and your horseradish and you say well i am in an alternate timeline and it wasn't worth it even for the brooklyn dodgers would you like hockmeister's creamy garum with that mmm would i it's from chicago you know
0: <laughs> well if it's from chicago that makes it automatically good and well i guess that is the ultimate horror right is that you could create a condiment that would be a chicago specialty that you don't like but would have to eat just out of pure pride
1: pure civic pride the malort of condiments <laughs> <laughs> and and once we have and once we've made wormwood creamy and umami filled, I feel that it is time to back slowly away from the time machine and seek refuge in our own preferred meat sauce.
0: Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games Hegrain press ask for gown. Art Dream Dark Tower and Pro Fantasy Software
1: Music as always is by James Simple Audio editing by Rob Borges Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin
0: Ensure that we cut the mustard and the mustard does not cut us by joining such fine backers as Chris Lydon Chris Farrell Eben Lindsay Joe Webb and Josh Borlace. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin
1: Celebrate the inevitable rise of the cephalopods and subtweet your followers with our latest oceanic design. Here come the reply, guys.
0: On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.